Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Bobo, you ready? Oh, oh, I got a huge burp, my dang it. Well, that's the kind of stuff that people tune in for, so don't hide it. Uh, it went away, but I mean, it's still there, but it's not coming out. Well, then, then that's when I ask you how you're doing, that's what you can talk about because people will love that. All right? I'm ready. Hello, Bobo. How are you doing today? I'm working on a big burp. I've been drinking a, a mineral sparkling water, and it's got a huge belching me but it's not coming out yet so i'm a little plugged well that gives uh me and the audience something to look forward to um that's fantastic how long you been working on this (laughs) just a couple minutes just a couple minutes so it's kind of a short-term project for you then yeah (laughs) okay i've I've troubled those long-term commitment goals i understand commitment frightens me as well um (laughs) fantastic anything else going on um how's the filming project you've been (sighs) big footing oh there it was that's part of it. There it was. Yeah. I'm burp, I'm burping myself. You're burping yourself. Just slinging yourself over your own your own shoulder and patting yourself on the back. Yeah. Oh, how cute! I can see you now. We're in the bib. I'm gonna call you Bibbo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm down in LA right now, picking up a used motorhome the production company's buying for the documentaries we're doing. Oh, okay, cool. Nice. And uh, it's still on target to film the next month or two? Yeah, next week. Next week? These atmospheric rivers of rain have not been a help, and it looks like we're going to get rained on pretty good for the next shoot. We keep we can't keep postponing because pretty soon it's going to get where it's going from that rain to ice and snow and sleet. So we want to get in there before that happens. Well, yeah, I, I don't want to say where your target area is, of course, but I know it's a higher altitudes. You're going to run into a lot of problems out there if you don't get it done relatively soon. It is November, after all. I know, dude. Yeah, it's 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 a challenge. Yeah, yeah, everything is right. It, it gives me more. Uh, it gives me more. Well, I always kind of had sympathy for him, but for the producers on finding Bigfoot, you know, like trying to we'd be like god you guys booked this out terrible you know it's like blizzards and stuff like we have you know we're just we have to select the dates then stick to the dates like at least we were able to pull out because the day the two days we were scheduled to be out in the woods at the one spot got over like seven inches of rain in 48 hours i I think uh any of our producers would be surprised to hear you say you had sympathy for them in any way whatsoever (laughs) Luckily, none of them listen to this podcast. <laughs> I, I know they don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that karma? Yeah, what do you got going on? 
oh, just get working at the museum. Um, I've got a slow time for gigs now. The next gig uh, that I have coming up is going to be CryptidCon on uh, November 20th um, out in Lexington, Kentucky, I believe. That's going to be a good lineup. But uh, other than that, I'm just kind of enjoying being home for an extended stay. Uh, I think I got to pull back on these out of town jobs, man. Um, I, I know you've already done so uh, for, for the, you know your mental health, I guess. Um, but I think I'm right there, man. Like two or three jobs a month kind of taxes on you for six months in a row, and you know because oh, and people are out there going, you work three times a month. No, I work every single day at the museum, and then of course, uh, even on my days off very often, and then I have to go out of town for three or four days at a time and travel sucks and stuff. So I'm really enjoying being home right now. Um, working on a long-term recording project, a uh, long duration recording project um, at a witness's house who lives in a very good location where a ton of stuff happens. Um, sharing those, uh, the, sharing my progress and stuff with our, you know, our museum members and that sort of thing for the membership program. Um, trying to get out in the woods just a little bit more than I, I have been since I'm in town. Um, oh, oh, and this is kind of big news. Um, the NABC, the North American, uh, you know, museum that I'm always ranting about, um, we just bought a hair analysis microscope. So um, we can now do in-house microscopic analysis of hair samples, um, which is the best way to start that process, of course, because, you know, DNA and everything costs thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, but you can at least look at it under a microscope for free and eliminate a lot of known animal hairs. And as it turns out, Sasquatches have um, some pretty well-defined characteristics um, and their hair. Dr. Her Dr. Henner Fehrenbach, um, you know, went over this sort of thing. Um, he had all these unknown samples that, that may have been Bigfoots, but they were eliminated from being other animals, bears and elk and everything else like that. So he started looking way back in the day. This is like 20 years ago now, probably um, way back in the day, started looking at, okay, well, I have all these hairs that defy um, identification. Maybe they have something in common. And it turns out they did. Um, and I've got a kind of a crash course from Dr. Meldrum last time I was out in his laboratory. He was kind enough to sit down with me with uh, hair samples that I've collected over the years um, or people have sent to me and went through them all. Um, we found one hair that kind of matched the, the Fehrenbach gold standard, shall we say. Where was that from? Uh, one guess. Go ahead. Who do, you, who do you think would give that to me? One guess. Who, who's pretty much the, the top of the heap as far as Bigfoot field folks? It was me? No, not you. Who's, who's number two? Uh, oh, Tom Shea. Yeah, Tom Shea, of course. Yeah, so Tom had a hair sample that he collected from a track line. So there's a one-to-one -one correlation. Um, and sure enough, it showed the characteristics. What about those two hairs I gave you? I have, uh, you know what? We just got the microscope a couple of days ago. I have not had the chance to put them under the microscope yet. But I'm starting to dig out all the other samples um, and looking at all those. Um, and Tom Shea sent me another sample two weeks ago that he pulled off a branch in a track line, um, he cast a footprint and a handprint from what I understand. Haven't seen it. Which individual? Don't know. Don't know. It, I don't, it doesn't seem to be Goliath, though. It's just, who knows? Who knows? We'll see. Because he has, he has four that you guys have ID'd, right? For what? Oh, a Sasquatches? I don't know about that. We've ID'd Goliath, and there's another individual in a new area that he's working on. But again, um, you know, Tom has so many casts that I have not just had a chance to put eyes on yet. Um, but I'm going to be visiting with Tom in November. I'm going to go out there and spend a day with him. So maybe I'll get a chance to do that then. Lucky. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, another hair sample and it seems to pass the muster so far. So I'm trying to get a second opinion on it. And so I, I guess that's the big news around here on the NABC right now, uh, is that we got a hair analysis microscope and we're start, we're dipping our toe into that pool now, which is kind of cool. 
because it'll save a lot of money and it'll save a lot of time if we can identify them under the hair uh, under the microscope. Do the, does this ha- does this hair sample have those standard features the 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 Fehrenbach gold standard, shall we say? And from there, we can choose to go on to further analysis um, or not. <sighs> Was that a grunt of approval, Bobo? <laughs> yeah, because I, I was going to say, you don't have to be a scientist to try to identify hair samples. You know, like the, it's it's pretty visual. It's just a visual test of, you don't got to be a PhD to use a, uh, I was going to say microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently you do, Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> you don't got to be a PhD to use a microscope. I mean, um, there's a little, I mean, it's, it's uh, like Jeff said, it's not just, it's not just looking through. It's like it's, there's a little art form to it, you know, like getting it just adjusted right. I mean, but if you practice with it, you, anyone can do it to identify uh, known animal species. Yeah, at the very basic level, this is something that anybody can do if you have a piece of equipment that's good enough. You know, if like if your microscope can do it, and most can. Mine didn't cost a thousand or two thousand dollars. I think the microscope we bought was less than four hundred dollars, and it's totally good enough totally good enough. And so I've, I've never really gotten into the hair before. So I'm um, going to start looking at it. But enough blabbing about us. Who cares about us? We're, we're a couple losers. We have somebody cool on the program today. And uh, we've we've met this uh, this person before. Well, you've met her before. Um, I know her a little bit better than you, I guess, in some ways, just because I, I she wrote to me years ago, years ago, kind of just asking like, hey, do you mind if I ask questions? And she, yeah, of course, anybody can ask me a question. I, I'm, I usually get back to people on email. I'm batting about 70% right now. Um, but I got back to her. Um, her Her name, well, she she's most commonly known, I guess, in the Bigfoot field as the Forest Fleur. Um, and uh, and so it's Emily, what, Emily Fleur? Is that how we address you, Emily? <laughs> yes, I love the way you say that. <laughs> Fleur. Well, it's spelled F-L-E-U-R and Fleur seems to be the right way to do it, so... Yes. I think you need to record my new podcast intro. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe if, if you want a sarcastic jerk doing it. Yeah, I'll be happy to. What's up, Emily? <laughs> yeah, what's up, Emily? Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys today. Yep, I've been on your podcast. Yep, you both have. And uh, really popular episodes. Everybody loves hearing from you guys. So thank you for being a guest on my podcast as well. Oh, happy to do it. Always happy to do it. Uh, and really, as part, as part of this thing, I, 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 I didn't never considered myself one until Lauren Coleman started heckling me one day, like with my beard and white hair and how he has a beard and white hair. And Meldrum does now. I mean, just go down the list. All these people are, are white haired, bearded old people. Um, and he started referring to me as a, an elder statesman of Bigfoot. Um, and I realized, well, you know, part of the part of my responsibility I guess, if I am going to be considered an elder statesman of Bigfoot, is to kind of take younger people, younger researchers under my wing in a way and kind of guide them as I may seem appropriate, what seems appropriate to me at least, um, whether they want that or not. Um, so, and then that, when you wrote to me, I realized, well, that's kind of my responsibility as, as being an old man now. So maybe I'll, I'll, I'll start guiding a few folks if they ask me questions. Yeah, it's like going to those Indian reservations and you got to talk to the elders. You go, there's some guy younger than you. You're like, damn. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. Well, I think there's probably no greater compliment than someone that you help along the way, um, exceeding your expectations and exceeding your own accomplishments. I think that every parent would want that for their children. Um, not, I don't have any children that I know of, of course. But, um, uh, you know, that, I think I can see how, like, my dad, for example, would want me to go further in life than him. And I think that's part of, like, 
Well, I mean, Bobo, I hate to say it, we're, we're the old men now. And that's part of our gig is to help and guide people if we can, if we even have anything wise to say. Although I have been called a wise guy more than once, so I'm assuming I do. Boo. I know. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. So, uh, Emily, for people who don't know you, um, how did you start? start Cause you're, you're, you're young. You're, you're at the beginning of your big footing career, if you want to call it that, depending on how long you last. Um, how did you start this whole thing? Like, wh- why do you care about Bigfoot? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm only 25 and I've been doing this for about five years. And, um, the way that I started was, uh, I was just home one summer, you know, school break. And uh, I popped in a DVD and I started watching it. It was from a little pack of, of horror movies like that you buy at, you know, the supermarket or something. And I saw one about Bigfoot. So I popped it in. Turns out it was The Legend of Bigfoot by Ivan Marks. And as we know, Ivan Marks is a very controversial controversial Bigfooter. Um, but his, his documentary really inspired me, uh, because of his passion that he exudes, you know, looking for this creature and the spooky music. And, you know, of course they have the, the people dressed up as Sasquatches in the film, or I guess what he considers to be a real Sasquatch. Um, and, I was just so inspired by this and I was creeped out and I thought, oh my God, you know, does, is this really out there? And so for the next few years, I, I watched a couple of documentaries on it, um, but I was still too young to really become completely invested in the subject. Um, finding Bigfoot really inspired me, especially when you guys went to the Whitehall area. Uh, I am from New York, so that was close to where I lived at the time. And I said, oh, you know, can we go to Whitehall? I asked my parents, can we take a trip? So I was probably in, in junior high at this point, and we drove uh, up to Whitehall, and we went to visit the big statue in the middle of the town, and we went to the Skeensboro Museum, and the museum director took out an old map, and he he traced his finger along the map of New York and Vermont, and, and he basically told me, you know, this is where people see them, and this is where they may be migrating and traveling through, and the apple orchards and the golf courses, and I was just so inspired. And to be there and to kind of see that firsthand, you know, he's showing me real reports. Well, so we we assume, um, but it kind of made it all very real to me. And so when I got to college, I started doing a lot of research papers on Bigfoot. And I had a project from one of my professors and he said, you know, create a business where you're selling a product and pitch it to me. And, you know, you get a grade for it. I went to school for product development. So everybody at my school did, you know, fashion and all this stuff. And I said, well, let me try and do something unique. So I thought about how much I love Bigfoot. And I said, well, what if I created a business where I was selling products with Bigfoot on them, but products that aren't just to make money, products that will inspire people to keep going. And, you know, when they look on their table and they see my coaster with a Bigfoot on it, it reminds them that they can do this, you know? So I kind of put together this little project and my professor loved it so much. And he said, you know, I'm really interested in this whole Bigfoot thing. You know, where can I find more information? You should really start this, this organization and sell your products and then teach people about Bigfoot. So that's kind of how the whole thing was born. I, I started creating products. I started doing a lot of research. And that's when I reached out to you because I wanted to make sure that I was headed in the right direction on my research and reading the right books and figuring out theories. And, and so that's kind of how it was born. 
That's an interesting story. I was wondering, because like, I was like, who's this young lady with all this stuff, like, popping? Like, like she's got all this merchandise, like, cool, cooler stuff that I'm trying to sell. Like, like where'd she come from? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been so much fun. I, I started around 2017, uh, but I, it really didn't kick off until around 2019. That's when I really got serious about this. And I, I wanted to make sure that the articles that I was putting out there are really genuinely educating people and not just my own theories and ideas. I wanted them to be backed by scientific papers and um, you know, repu- reputable sources. So that's kind of when I really started amping it up. And um, I've just had so much fun with it. I love talking to people about it. I love exchanging theories and ideas. And even if I don't agree with somebody on their theories, you know, sometimes they'll open my mind to something I didn't think about before. So it's been a really rewarding experience so far. Now, you said you're writing articles and whatnot. Where can people read these articles? Um, so I have a blog on my website. It's theforestfleur.com. And um, I have an evidence page where you could read about, you know, just the basics of Bigfoot evidence. And then I have a uh, research page. And that's kind of where I develop all of my theories on Bigfoot. You know, is Bigfoot a, a human? Is it closer to, say, a gorilla or a chimpanzee? Um and, you know, I know that that maybe you would argue, you know, we don't want to put labels on Bigfoot. I just um, think it's a waste of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I understand that completely. But I think, you know, what got me interested in this subject is kind of wondering what this thing is. And I think that's kind of a pull for a lot of people, too. So I like to open people's minds so that, you know, they may consider how they can help the species and, you know, how they can document evidence better. And I think kind of speaking about their origins reels people in and gets them excited about the subject. So that's what's mainly on my research page. Uh, yeah, but I would I would argue that speaking about their their origins is different than putting words on them to define them. Right, that's true. Yeah, because um, I'm very interested in human origins, and I'm I happen to be a human. Um, but at the same time, when somebody says a cliff is a bigfooter. Well, that's demeaning, frankly, is what it is. I mean, and, and when you say Cliff is a, a musician, that's also demeaning because it, it ignores everything else that I am. Um, and and that's what and, and maybe I'm just speaking from the other side of the veil of celebrityhood because, I, you know, I was on TV and all this other junk and people think they know me and people think they have me dialed in and they clearly do not um, because they they think they know me as a as this or that. And when you slap a word on something, I feel that you ignore or one ignores um, so many other aspects. Um, and suddenly, and again, this is from that being labeled on slapping labels on me. Um, I, I'm suddenly very thin, you know, um, and, and I don't mean like, you know, svelte. I mean, like a two-dimensional. And I think that uh, putting too many words on Sasquatches, and that's where my argument lies, by the way, because I know we've had this discussion, saying that they're human is misleading. Saying that they're apes is also misleading. The one accurate thing you say is they're Sasquatch. Yeah, Sasquatch is Sasquatch. It doesn't matter what our preconceived, what we preconceive it to be. It is what it is. Yeah, that's kind of my argument there. Yeah, but but I understand the draw, and everybody loves to do that. I totally get it. And um, a good friend of mine told me once that if you say that they're people, they'll be treated better um, because people disrespect apes, and and that's why this individual does it. Uh, but I don't know. Yeah, but I'm with you. I get it. I get it. I'm just a jaded old man. <laughs> <laughs> and to hear that you're watching uh, Finding Bigfoot in junior high school just reinforces the old man part. 
<laughs> yeah, I totally get that. I mean, it definitely makes sense. And, you know, that's why I try. I get a lot of messages online from people with their own theories. And, you know, some of them go into the paranormal or the interdimensional. And although I don't really necessarily look into that aspect of it, um, I never like to shut down people's theories because at the end of the day, like you said, these are Sasquatches and they may have physical traits that explain their weird behavior that we don't even know about yet in science. So you just never know. They could just surprise us all and be something that none of us ever expected. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a solid bet that they're going to they're, they're going to be many surprises um, when they're actually uh, recognized as a real species. So for sure. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. So um, tell, tell us about some of your, uh, I know you like going to the field. Um, tell us about some of your earlier field experiences out on the East Coast. Sure. So I have been kind of new to field work recently, um, but I did try and get out in the field a lot this past year, especially with um, the pandemic. I lost my full-time job and it allowed me to pursue Bigfooting pretty much full-time. So once a month, I would travel to the Adirondack region of New York and I would conduct some field work. Um, in 2017, I had just begun my research and, and interest in you know, my, my invested interest in Bigfoot. And, um, I was up in Lake George, which normally during the summer is a, a very populated region with a lot of people, but on the off season, there's barely anyone up there. None of the stores are open. None of the restaurants are open. So I was there during the off season because being a, a, a kid, you know, I, I didn't have much money. So it was cheap to go there in early May. And so I was on this trail, um, it's called Prospect Mountain, and the road that tourists usually take up is closed during the off-season. So you kind of have to hike up, it's this really rugged uh, hike, and so I got all the way to the top, and it started to get dark. The person I was with um, said, oh, let's go at dusk, which was a, a bad idea. You should never hike at dusk. <laughs> we should always hike at dusk. <laughs> Well, yeah, if you want to see a Bigfoot, I guess. Um, but it was a little creepy, especially being too young. You know, we were pretty young at the time, so we probably should have been a little smarter about that. But I'm glad we weren't because something interesting happened. So as we were walking down the road, I was approaching like 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. And I said, well, there's nobody on this trail. We haven't seen a person for the past two hours. I'm going to let out a Bigfoot call just to practice, not to try and get a response, just to merely practice my call. And after watching Finding Bigfoot, I, I said, oh, you know, I'm going to try this call. I'm going to try Cliff's call. I'm going to try Bobo's call. And so I let out a couple of, of vocalizations. And since we were at the top of a mountain, the sound traveled pretty far. And... Not long after, I started hearing this very high-pitched scream, and it would go off for a few seconds, and then it would stop, and then it would go off again and stop, and it sounded like it was getting closer, you know, as, as the time went on, and this went on for about 15 minutes, and I was just 
terrified because after doing the little research that I did at that time, I, I did know that this was something unusual. And so I started getting really freaked out and I'm like, oh my God, you know, what the heck is that? I'm running through my head. What could this be? And, um, so that was a, a pretty unique experience. I sprinted out of the woods. We got out of there as fast as we could. Um, but I, I never really attributed it to Bigfoot because although I knew that I couldn't explain the noises, I just, for some reason, I just didn't think that they would be in that area. But now looking back on it, you know, based on the time of year and the lack of people there, I, it does make more sense to me, especially the direction it was coming from is just all wilderness. Um, and so then another experience I had more recently, uh, this past, actually November of 2020, so almost a year ago, I was in Vermont uh, in the Fairhaven region. I won't say exactly where. And I was on a trail. And again, you know, kind of the off season, not a lot of people are on that trail that time of year. Um, and I said, oh, let me just check this creek bed. There was a beautiful little creek. And I thought, if I'm going to find a footprint anywhere, it's going to be next to a water source. So I got down and I started looking immediately something caught my eye and it looked to be five clear toes and it was a small, a pretty small print. And I thought, oh my God, you know, what could this be? It did not look like a mountain lion. There were no claws, um, you know, no boot prints or anything in the area. And so that was a, a really interesting experience. Um, but I did make a couple of mistakes. I did not measure it. Uh, I took a terrible picture of it and then I tried casting it, but it was 30 degrees and my plaster dried up too quickly. So that was, um, my first big mistake in bigfooting. Uh, but that's kind of, uh, the most exciting things that have been yielded from my field work on the East coast. If, if you're not making mistakes, you're probably not really bigfooting. Because that seems to be the most common thing that anyone does in Bigfoot. I mean, if if I, I just look back at all the egregious errors that I have made in my Bigfooting career. So I, try not to beat yourself up too badly about any any one or two or half dozen or three dozen mistakes you're, you make. Um, yeah, because, man, I, I've blown it so many times. <laughs> I know. And, it, it, you know, I, I feel like we kick ourselves because, you know, evidence is pretty rare. You know, it's not every day you're going to come across a footprint. So I was pretty mad at myself. But then, you know, after joining the membership, the museum's membership, um, you guys put out a really fabulous video about casting prints. And I learned quickly what I did wrong. And, uh, and then I created my footprint casting buckets. So, you know, it, it wasn't all bad. <laughs> Yeah, actually, which I've had the pleasure of use on a real to use that uh, bucket on a real Sasquatch print, um, which is kind of cool. So anyway, yeah, you can see a picture of me somewhere. I don't know if you use it or not, but I, I know I put it out somewhere on my social media or something. But but I like your buckets because they actually uh, they what, what would be the word for the telescope out? And uh, what's the word for that? They collapse. Yeah, they collapse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool because uh, buckets are rather hassle. They're kind of a hassle to carry around. So telescoping is also correct. Oh, thank you very much, Bobo. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, why do, so here's a question for you. Um, I know approximately where you live. I'll just say the New York general metropolitan area. Um, and you're going all the way to upstate New York for Bigfooting. Have you tried New Jersey? I have not. You know, it's it's been a little difficult for me. Um, just being that I didn't really, I mean, you know, coming from New York, I don't really have many people that are willing to go out and scream in the woods and knock on trees. <laughs> you know, people out there just, unfortunately, there's just, it's a different um, lifestyle out there. You know, a lot of people don't think that Bigfoot 
exists. A lot of people don't think that Bigfoot is in New York. Um, so it's been very difficult for me to find field work partners in that area. So really, I just kind of took friends, family, um, you know, partners. And, and that's kind of how I got my field work done. I would just convince them like, oh, well, if you come with me bigfooting, you'll be able to hike too. <laughs> so honestly, it's been such a pleasure to get out here. Um, and for those of you who don't know, I'm on the West Coast right now. And it's been such a pleasure to be out here because I'm actually doing real field work. And it's it's been so much fun. And I'm doing it often, which is something I'm not used to. Uh, because in New York, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would go out probably once a month. So uh, that was difficult. Yeah, frequencies. Frequency is really important because, I mean, you really start getting a feel and a vibe. Like, when you just go once a month or every couple months, you know, you you don't have much to go off. But if you go there all the time, and even though, even though it's dead a lot of the time, at least you're establishing what the patterns are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the patterns would be anything from uh, what kind of plants are in the area, but also what kind of animals are there and why are they there? And then that sheds some light on why Sasquatches might be there as well. Either they're going after the same resources or they're going after the animals themselves um, that are going after these other resources. Exactly. I will say, though, I, I have done some and this is kind of an interesting thing. I've I've done a lot of hiking in the Long Island area of New York. And for me, I think that's really important because there's no Sasquatches there. And I think that every good Bigfoot researcher should spend some time in an area where there aren't any Sasquatches. And I know that when Connor came out to visit me in New York, I took him hiking on Long Island. And, um, and we went on a couple of trails and we heard some strange noises. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if I was anywhere else, I may have thought that was a Sasquatch. And I thought that was really interesting because I think, you know, when you go somewhere without Bigfoots, it really gives you an idea for what the forest sounds like naturally. And you can kind of eliminate the possibility of a Sasquatch. So you get to know the noises better. Yeah, it's kind of calibrating in a lot of in, in a certain sort of way. I've thought about doing the same thing with stick structures um, because you know I'm not on the stick structure train at this point. You know, and I'm, th yeah, maybe they do it, but no one's convinced me, um, and I'm I'm waiting to be convinced, as everybody who listens to the podcast knows. But um, I was thinking about going to Mount Tabor in uh, Portland because um, I'm completely confident there are no Sasquatches there. Um, it's a, it's a, you know, an extinct, small little extinct volcano thing in the middle of Portland. Like there's no way a Bigfoot would be there. And I was going to walk around and take pictures of possible stick structures, but then I realized, well, that's not really fruit. You know, that, that won't yield any fruit because, um, number one, people will say, oh, people did it because people are in Mount Tabor, of course. But also there, there is that fringe out there that would say, no, they're, they just teleported in. And it's like, okay, well, I can't argue with that kind of mindset. And it's not really even worth my time to argue with that kind of mindset. But um, I realized, eh. but I understand. I want to calibrate like here, here's what nature does when given a chance. Um, and uh, you're kind of doing the same thing by going to an area where you don't think there are any Sasquatches and uh, listening to the night woods. You know, I think that's cool. Yeah. I've definitely found it to be helpful. So um, now that you're uh, now that you've had some time on the West Coast, um, and of course this isn't this isn't your first trip out either. But uh, now that you've had your a uh, little bit of time on both coasts, what are the differences that you see in um, perhaps the culture of Bigfooters and the terrain that they're up against? That's a great question. I would. It was say purely accidental. I assure you. <laughs> I would say in terms of the culture, um, a lot of people on the East Coast, and you know, this is a, a very broad generalization, um, a lot of people on the East Coast, they 
they like the idea of Bigfoot uh, because they think it's really cool. Whereas out here, I think a lot of people like the idea of Bigfoot because they actually believe in Bigfoot or they've had an encounter with Bigfoot. Um, and I know plenty of people in New York who have had encounters, Vermont, you know, Ohio, right? But, um, you know, in, in general, I think a lot of people in the East um, want to believe, whereas out here, people do believe. And in terms of habitat, I definitely notice a lot of similarities, to be honest. Um, you know, this the West Coast is just a, a a blown up version of the East. You know, you go to Lake Placid um, in New York and it looks very similar to Oregon. Um, yeah, I think I think people's values are different. You know, out here, people really value nature and the outdoors. Um, so maybe more people are out in the woods to see Sasquatches. I've always wondered that, you know, like we can't really go off of report maps because that's just people seeing a Sasquatch. That doesn't mean that there are more Sasquatches there just because there are more sightings. That always interests me. Yeah, to have a sighting report, you have to have this perfect storm of a Sasquatch in a spot where a human happens to be, and uh, that human has to feel compelled to find somebody to tell who must be compelled to listen and tell somebody else, like put it out there on their database or whatever they do. Um, that's a lot of variables right there, a lot of variables. I think the biggest one is the the willing the person willing to go online and log the report. I mean, that's where the breakdown happens. Oh, yeah. I, I would totally agree with that. And especially um, a lot of the people who live out in these rural areas, maybe they don't have internet access. Maybe they're not good at computers. You know, uh, Maybe they don't like to type. You know, Maybe they don't know how to type. There's a lot of obstacles between an online database and the Bigfoot that was seen. And to put it in some some sort of perspective here, real fast, I'll just look up um, bfro.net. I'm going on Matt's fantastic uh, database here, um, sightings by region. I'm going to Oregon, and I'm going to look at Clackamas County because that's the county that I am currently sitting in. And I, oh, I see that Matt has 27 reports out of Clackamas County, and the most recent one is from 2014. To put that in perspective, I think I think it's safe to say if I went downstairs and got our sighting report book out of the um, you know out of the office in the, the the museum here, I think we have well over a hundred, hundred and twenty or something like that probably at this point. Um, the most recent being uh, what day is today? Thursday? No, it's Friday, isn't it? Okay, so about three and a half weeks ago was the most recent sighting. The one before that was in August, and we've only been collecting reports for about a year and a half. You know, but so, so just that one little thing, people can come in and talk to us makes that big of a difference. Right. And I remember when I had um, researcher Matt Pruitt on my podcast, he had told me, don't nest. And you know what? Shane from the Olympic Project had told me the same thing. Don't necessarily go off of reports if you're trying to go bigfooting because, you know, there may be more than you think, you know, go off of the habitat instead. And I found that to be very interesting advice. Well, I can't I can't say from my experience, um, the blueberry bog, there has never been a Bigfoot report out of there, um, at least when I started going. Um, now there's, you know, now I've got a database full of stuff, I guess, from there. Um, but still, I just looked at it and said, well, that looks – or another spot Bobo and I hit, used to hit all the time down in California, we call it the water spot. Again, no Bigfoot reports out of there, but sure enough, they were there. And we I chose that spot, and Boba, turns out, found that spot independent of me and before me. But, I mean, I stumbled upon that spot because it looked to me like they should be there. And sure enough, they were. I mean, Emily, you seem like you're a pretty normal person. I mean, most people think you were 
if they just talked to you without the Bigfoot thing coming up, you wouldn't come off across as anything odd or anything. You know, you seem like a cool down earth person. What did people think when you started getting into the Bigfoot, like it's turning in school projects and, you know, coming up with products and stuff? Were they, were you kind of, were you kind of outcast at all? Or was it just everyone was cool with it? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I was always the girl in high school with Bigfoot stickers all over my car. So everybody kind of knew I was a little quirky, or at least they thought that. I mean, I think I'm just into science. Um, but yeah, in college, when I when I turned in all those papers, honestly, my class loved it. And I did not expect that reaction because I went to school in New York City, and you can't get more anti-Bigfoot than that. Um but yet all of these inner city kids were like, oh my God, you know, tell us more. They were so interested in it. And, you know, a lot of them ended up messaging me, um, you know, months later being like, oh, you know, I took a trip to Connecticut or I went to Jersey or Pennsylvania and I saw a Bigfoot sticker on someone's car or I saw a store with a Bigfoot in the window. And, you know, it kind of opened their minds to it. And, it was kind of like they had never noticed it before or paid attention to it. And now all of a sudden they had this interest. So I, I got uh, a better reaction than I thought. Um, and in terms of the products, yeah, I've had a, a great reaction to that. People love, um, the products. I, I try and include a sustainable element in every product. So people really like that. And of course, you know, I like it because it benefits the environment that Bigfoot calls home. Um, and so, yeah, I've had an overall really great reaction. And of course, there are some people that will um, judge you and, and think, oh, you know, this will never amount to anything. Um, but that's not the goal, right? The goal is to learn about this creature. And, you know, my goal at least is to teach people about it, you know, and, and there were a lot of people in my, my college classes who had no idea that this creature even existed. And now they have kind of a entry level interest in the subject. And, and hopefully we can grow that into a real passion. Now, what about your family? How, what's their perspective on this? Are they tripping out on you or are they just like, go for it? <laughs> um, you know, funny enough, my family and I used to sit down every Sunday night and watch Finding Bigfoot together. Um, so they are definitely believers too. Uh, not to the extent that I am, but they love um, learning everything that I'm researching. I'll always send them my articles and they're very interested in it. Um so they're not as gung-ho about it as I am, but we actually laugh because, uh, you know, before I had suppliers and artisans to make my products, my family would help me out a lot with things. So we gave each other like fake company names. Like my mom was the shipping clerk and my dad was the senior advisor and the product maker. And we would like laugh about that stuff. So they've always been a, a huge part of my journey in the Bigfoot community. And, um, some of my extended family does not believe, but they still support me nonetheless. So I'm sure eventually they'll become believers. I'm, I'm on a mission to convert everybody in my family. <laughs> it's not a conversion. It's a enlightening. Yes, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> so, um, I, so you are very fired up about um, conservation and protecting the species. And I think that's a lot, uh, one of the driving forces behind you. And I, I've always admired that about you. And that's, uh, again, one of the reasons that I think that you're kind of one of the uh, the brighter points of light in the upcoming generation. And I think you should be encouraged. Um, but uh, to that end, what what are your thoughts on how one protects the Sasquatch, particularly at this stage in the game? 
That's a really, really interesting point. Um, I think it's hard. Uh, I have done a lot of research into conservation, how to make something like that happen, how to put together uh, an organization where people can donate and things can be done for the environment. And that is just uh, a big, big undertaking. So unfortunately, at this stage in the game, for me at least, I'm not able to do something of that scope. So what I did was I created a little page on my website. It's called Preservation Bigfoot. And basically, it just goes into how we can protect Bigfoot's environment on a very small scale. Because at the end of the day, if everybody does something small, we can create a big change. And I know that's so cliche. um, But it really is true. So I've researched a lot into uh, how we can transmit diseases to Sasquatch and how, you know, feeding them and and gifting to them may be um, detrimental to their species. I mean, you know, maybe it's not, but uh, I've researched that maybe it could be. So basically the message that I'm trying to put out there is just, you know, respect their environment, pick up your trash. If you see trash on the trails, pick that up. Uh, Try not to gift food items or candy bars or stuff to Sasquatch. And if you do, you know, try and at least wash it off first so that we're not spreading our germs to them. Um, You know, because I I think that a lot of people get excited about communicating with them. And I think that may be a little bit dangerous to them. Um, And of course, you know, there's not too much data to back it up. But when you look at chimpanzees and gorillas, you know, we can transmit a lot of viruses and diseases to them, including COVID. Um, So I would hate to see that happen to Sasquatch. So I think on a a small scale, you know, just respect the environment you're in. Um, And I also encourage people when they're out in the field, you know, don't be tormenting these creatures and screaming and, you know, obviously, you know, do a call or a a knock or something like that. But, you know, don't be trying to instigate them or disrupt their life. Uh, I know that sometimes that can yield some evidence and maybe they'll get angry and chase after you or vocalize back. Uh, But I, I just encourage people to be respectful. And eventually I would like to start some sort of conservation effort where, you know, people can donate and something out in the field is being done to protect their environment. But I did have a very interesting conversation with, um, a researcher named Saul. I know, you know, him, He's been a guest on the podcast, yeah. Yes, and and he's awesome. And and I really thought his theories on Bigfoot were interesting because he was saying that they've kind of adapted and learned to survive even though we're doing logging and, you know, industrialization. Like, they've kind of learned to adapt to that. And that just shows how evolved and smart their species is. So I kind of found that pretty interesting. And it opened my eyes to the fact that they, they are very smart and they do adapt around our lifestyle. But I also think it is important to just keep them in mind and and respect their habitat. And where are you um, as far as uh, proof goes, which of course means a dead one? I mean, I do not think it's moral to kill one. And that's because I believe that they're closer to human. And I, you know, not to put labels, but I do believe they're closer to human. Um, And I think they're very intelligent and they have, you know, family groups. And and honestly, I wouldn't kill a gorilla or a chimpanzee either. I I don't think that's moral either. But 
I my hope is that eventually someone finds fossils. Uh, I know that's very difficult because the places that Bigfoot lives, um, bones don't fossilize well. Uh, but hopefully somebody finds fossils or maybe one that has passed away naturally. But I think what people fail to realize is that when an animal or even a person is in distress and not feeling well, they're not just going to die out in the open. <laughs> they're probably going to go into a cave or some kind of cover. Um, so I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen. And unfortunately, I, I do foresee somebody just shooting one and not caring. Um, and I think it's sad if it has to come to that point, but it is science. And unfortunately, that's kind of how science works. Yeah. If you're, if you're looking for any real long-term protection for them, it's going to be a dead one that brings that forth. Unfortunately, I don't like it either, but that's, I didn't write the rules. I just follow them and you know, I'm not going to pull the trigger anyway. I'm not going to kill one of these things. So the problem is people have shot them. It just, uh, it blows my mind how they just leave them there. You know, like they, they don't, they don't think about how important it would be to, you know, just turn it in anonymously, you know? But yeah, imagine if you were looking at a dead one that you just brought down with some high caliber rifle or something like that. I bet you're, I bet thinking isn't real high on the list of things that are going on at that point. I mean, I bet the adrenaline must just be soaring, be scared. You'd be, I mean, I don't think a deep, thoughtful sit down is what is what comes next. Um, I, I think it's mostly like, holy crap, now what? A kind of fight or flight sort of situation in a weird sort of tangential way. I would, I would guess at least. Yeah. And I also think I, I read a story once about a prospector who I think this happened in California. He shot one because it was coming. It was running after him, trying to attack him. It, it had been stealing his meat um, throughout the the previous few days. And um, he was kind of getting pissed off. So he packed up all his meat and he must have irritated the creature. It started running after him. He shot it. And he describes this thing in, in great detail, the fingers, the face, everything. And he felt kind of bad that he killed it. He felt like he had killed a man. So he dug a hole and he buried it because he says, I just didn't know what this was. I didn't know what to do with it. And to be honest, I think that a lot of situations like that have probably happened where people have shot them, not known what to do and just buried them. And at that point, the fossils are gone within a few years. Well, yeah, yeah. And, well, the bones would be gone certainly within a few years. Right, right. Um, yeah, and you did mention fossils earlier, uh, and of course we're we're looking at most um, human ancestors and, and apes and stuff being from Asia and Africa and, and Europe and stuff like that at this point. Um, but uh, a lot of people don't realize, and I, I believe I always fact check what I say because numbers are a little squirrely in my head. But I believe that the first chimpanzee fossils were discovered in 2006. Um, so it's extraordinarily unlikely to, and I don't think there are any gorilla ancestors represented in the fossil record. Um, so that might be a little problematic as far as uh, using that for some sort of evidence or proof, food for thought there. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So right now in, in your field work, um, what is your focus? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Well, I've, I've honestly, I've come up with a lot of theories in my research. And so I'm trying to kind of tag team that with my field work. Um, I've been looking into the possibility that Bigfoot is, you know, kind of on a human intelligence level, uh, which I know is difficult to compare. You know, they, they may have their own abilities and intelligence that doesn't really compare to ours. Uh, but I'm trying to figure out if Bigfoot has a culture. So what I'm trying to do is I feel like 
No researchers have actually gone out in the field and spent day by day looking for evidence of culture. Of course, we don't really come across tool use. We don't come across fire. Um, but like I always tell people, there are probably 150 people or less that are actually seriously researching Sasquatch. And I bet that there's less than 10 who are able to devote a significant amount of time to it. So while I'm out here in the field, I'm definitely looking for evidence of culture. A lot of people do talk about stick structures, which are really hard to verify, but could these structures be part of something more? Could the nesting sites be something more? Maybe they aren't nests at all. Maybe they're some sort of representation of culture, a, a ritual of some sort. Um, so that's kind of my goal out in the field is to just try and either prove or disprove my theory uh, that Sasquatch may have a human-like culture. And what would be a human-like culture? I mean, because crows have a culture, you know, um, uh, chimpanzees, uh, their their culture is very well documented because uh, cultural culture is essentially passing knowledge on from one generation to another, some sort of, that's what essentially culture is. And correct me if I'm in, if I'm wrong about that, but um, what, uh, so, so what would be a human culture that you could be looking at um, in, in out in the woods? I would say a representation of symbolic thought, um, you know, something that kind of tells us that Bigfoot is aware of who it is. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, something that tells us that maybe art and music is part of their lifestyle. Um, you know, maybe these maybe these vocalizations are not to tell each other where they are. Maybe it's some sort of part of a song or something like that. And maybe it's not just them communicating where they are. Uh, and I know that it's, you know, a far-fetched theory, but I think that it's important to explore that because it may give us a, a better insight into what they are and, you know, why they do what they do. And maybe that will help us find them. Yeah, because there's definitely things that we take for granted now, like this behavior is this, this behavior is that, that, there's, I mean, who knows what it's going to be, but there's going to be things that we took as, you know, knowns that are, we were just misinterpreting and wrong. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's kind of how I feel about it. So I'm trying to kind of explore other options, right? You know, we, the, the Olympic project came across these nests and I've talked to Shane about this, um, as well, but you know, could this be something else? Could this be something more? Maybe they're weaving these nests as some sort of ritual, you know, during certain times of the year, uh, you know, maybe they sing while they do it, maybe, you know, something. And I'm trying to kind of figure out if that could be part of Bigfoot's lifestyle. Cause there are so many things about this creature or this species rather that are not explainable. Um, and that we can't really figure out. So I kind of think to myself, you know, could there be something more? Could their intelligence kind of be close to ours? Could their lifestyle be close to the way we lived once? Um, and could that be why we haven't found them? Could that be why certain things we can't explain? I would think it would be the opposite, that um, since they are so unlike us, that actually has stopped us from being able to find them with reliability. Because if they were like us, wouldn't we we would be running across them more because we're we're doing our thing and they would be doing our thing too. Yeah, just food for thought. I mean, that's, that came to my head when you were talking there. But again, I want to encourage you to go down whatever trail you choose to go down and just do the best job you can at it. Uh, something that you might want to explore is uh, there was uh, a study, I think, and it produced a bunch of articles. So it'd probably be very easy to find on the internet. Um, this idea, um, not even an idea, this, this thing where uh, researchers found that when gorillas are eating, they hum. 
to one another. Um, I'm not sure that's culture or not. Maybe it is. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that's what you're looking for. And it certainly is in the ape species, though. There's a precedent um, uh, in gorillas that while they're sitting around, you know, chilling and eating together and being communal, they hum uh, to one another. And, uh, I had a researcher just this past week who pulled a footprint and possibly a knuckle print actually. Um, and he heard humming on that same hill the day before. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Super interesting stuff. I think, I mean, in terms of like, I guess the reason I'm, I'm looking for this really is, you know, I think maybe a little of your point and a little of my point may meet in the middle, you know, I mean, I believe that Sasquatch, probably my strongest theory at this point, and of course we we don't know for sure, but I think that Sasquatch may be related to Australopithecus sediba. And of course, the Australopithecines were different from the Homo species, right? There's a lot of differences, but there are some similarities. And when you look at sediba, our common ancestor had the predisposition for symbolic thought, multitasking, reasoning, the same things that evolved us as modern humans. And what I really like about, about this theory is that there, there was a study done um, by the, I always say this wrong, European synchrotron, uh, but they, they studied the prefrontal cortex of Sidiba, and that's like, you know, kind of what, what defines us as human is the placement of our frontal lobes and the way the brain is formed. And they kind of figured out that there were advancements in the development of the prefrontal cortex. And those advancements foreshadowed the same proportional changes and predispositions that kind of evolved us as humans. So the way I think about it is like, if Bigfoot is related to Sediba, it would kind of line up on the tree around the same part that we would. They would have evolved similarly to us, but they could be a different species, a different thing altogether. So I guess my thoughts are, if it is related to Sediba, you know, could it have similar culture to us? Could it have evolved a similar way? Could it have adapted and adopted, uh, rather, um, a similar lifestyle? And um, something I read recently about Sediba was um, its foot turned inward and its weight was kind of focused on the edge of the foot, which to me, I see that a lot in footprint casts. And I don't know if you've noticed this too, but like the Pacific Northwestern cast, uh, what is it, 2004, 2005, 2004, you can see that the weight is on the outer edge of the foot. And that to me kind of compares to Sediba. So the way that I think of it is like, if Bigfoot is related to Australopithecus Sediba, it would be something entirely different, but it would have maybe evolved in a similar way to humans. And so that's kind of where I'm, I'm at. Like, should I be looking for similarities to human? You know, could they be doing similar things that we were when we were evolving as a species? I like how you think. <laughs> She's a thinker. I'm a thinker. <laughs> yeah, you, 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 you're, you're making my mind tick. Think about it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm curious to know your both of your thoughts on it. But, um, you know, that's just kind of how I think. Like, maybe it's not related to Homo, but could it have evolved along that same, you know, could it share an ancestor with us and then have evolved in a similar way? Definitely. It clearly shares an ancestor with us because we share an ancestor with every living thing. Um, how far back it goes is a good question. Um, I, as you know, I'm, I'm squarely on the Australopithecine um, train at this point. Um, I see no reason to discount that 
that theory, you know, uh, the hypothesis, I think it's probably a more appropriate word for it. Um, uh, Sediba, I don't know, they're the gracile. That, I think that's one of the problems with it. Um, they're, they're the gracile australopithecines. And I think that we need to be looking more at the robust ones. Um, uh, and it, particularly since this, uh, the, the gracile australopithecines, there's some evidence of some sort of tool use. And I think that would have gone further. Um, if, if I'm not sure specifically in Sediba or not, uh, if there was tool use there, but there is some evidence of tool use in the Australopithecines, at least the gracile ones, but to my knowledge, not in the um, more robust forms. Um, now, I have I, I read a book recently. It, the, the subject was all about um, bipedalism. He was talking about the um, abduction of the hallux in the Sediba foot. Um, to being quite large, I, I guess. And I, 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 I've been looking for more um, evidence to confirm this, but it seemed to me that I think I thought I always thought that Sediba would be a more better fit for a, uh, for um, perhaps the more ape-like Yeti, for example. Yeah, than the Sasquatch itself. And as far as the Pacific Northwest cast goes, um, that is is to me clearly a, a product of um, supination of the foot. Um, versus, which is the, and the which is the opposite of pronation of the foot. Um, it basically put the, uh, more of the foot plantar surface being in contact with the ground versus up. And when, and you're saying they walked on the outside of their foot, and of course that is essentially what supination is, but it's not habitual. And we know that because we have examples of the same individual Sasquatch with a pronated foot and a supinated foot. Um, and the, the Pacific Northwest cast shows the supination. But you know what, what that is a, a nice um, analog for, I guess, if that's the right word, is I have a, a track line from Sumatra of uh, um, orang, uh, not the orang pendek, the orang gadang, there it is, the orang gadang, G-U-D-A-N-G. And almost nothing has been written about this unknown hominoid um, outside of Sumatra, at least. There's, the, the people there, of course, know about it, but it essentially means big man, as opposed to orang pendek, which means small man. Um, the orang gadang is essentially a larger bipedal something or other. And it has an abducted hallux, so a, a big toe that sticks out to the side, a little bit more like a thumb. And I have um, a track line showing four tracks from the same trackway, and each of the foot uh, impressions is remarkably different than the last. And one of the things that it does, it has a, a large curling sort of footprint at some point uh, in two of the prints, and the other two are quite flat, essentially. So the two of them are pronate and two that are largely supinated. And those supination prints um, show what you're talking about, essentially, uh, walking on the outside of the foot, which is also something that uh, Dr. Sarmiento told me that orangutans do on a regular basis. Um, they walk on the outside of their foot and they also have an abducted hallux. So I, I'm, I'm my, my model at this point is that the orangutan, and in fact, the orangpendek are probably just two different species of some sort of uh, um, terrestrial orangutan is what I'm thinking at this point. But uh, to those lines, th those are my thoughts on it. Very interesting. I'll agree. <laughs> Wise choice. <laughs> agree with both of us. And that way you can't, you know, you're probably, you're hedging your bets, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Emily, you are really representative of the next generation coming up in Bigfoot, essentially, you know, uh, and and hopefully the others are rising to your level because you're, you're thoughtful, um, you, you speak kindly of people, you uh, do your research, uh, and you do your best. Um, but 
I mean, I hate to break it to you. This is a field dominated by men. For good or ill, that seems to be the case. Yeah, there are certainly women out there. There are fantastic, stellar examples of women researchers. Um, but most of the, the screen time, so to speak, is, is devoted to men. Um, and, I, I, and I think it's a shame. I think that women have just as much, if not more, to offer than men in general um, in, in this field and if, in every field, really. Um, so as you proceed forward, what are your thoughts on that? Because it could get ugly with like hypocritical, weird, nasty, evil stalkers coming after you. Like, have you given any thought to that at all? Or you just plow ahead and see what happens? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. Um, you know, I'm really trying to represent the younger generation well. You know, I want people to take this subject seriously and, and for it not to die off. I think being a woman in the field, I've enjoyed it so far. I mean, I, I've always worked well with men. I've always had male mentors in school and in at work. So I, um, I have no problem working with men. I think that women, more women should definitely get involved uh, with Bigfoot. I think that Sure, you know, gender doesn't matter at the end of the day, but I think that, you know, certain women and certain men can definitely bring different things to the table and and they they do think differently, you know. Um, you know, anatomically we do kind of think differently. So, I think that um more women should definitely get involved. It's it's such a fun field to be in and and sharing theories is is really important uh to do with people of all walks of life and any gender. Uh, and in terms of the trolls and the the haters and all that stuff, I really don't pay it any mind. Uh, I have some really incredible people that follow my page. Uh, they message me with their theories and ideas. Uh, I really do consider them friends. Um, I have members that donate to my organization each month to allow me to do things like what I'm doing right now and, and come out West and, and do this whole trip. So I have a lot of people that look out for me in this field. And, uh, I, I really don't bother with anyone who wants to say anything bad, which I haven't come across too often, but, um, you know, if somebody has something bad to say, then, you know, prove me wrong, go formulate your own theory and, uh, do your own thing, you know, but I, I don't think we should be beating each other down, especially in a field like this. This field has been made into a novelty. And sure, it benefits us in a way because people are attracted to the subject because of all the spooky movies and, you know, paraphernalia and stuff. But at the same time, this is a scientific field. This is the same thing as Jane Goodall going out in the field and looking for chimpanzees and observing them and getting close to them and, you know, coming up with hypotheses and, and documenting the evidence. This is the same thing. So I think that anybody who's going to make this into something negative, just, you know, I, I don't pay them any mind. I don't like to communicate with those people. Well, a lot of people are saying you're the Ariana Grande of Bigfoot. <laughs> well, that's a very nice compliment. I wish I could sing like her. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, would you mind singing us a song? <laughs> Do you know the song Roger and Bob by any chance? It's one of the best <laughs> ones out there. Yeah, not going to happen on this show. Maybe next time. Get a few drinks in me first. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, thank you so much for spending some time with Bobo and I and just kind of sharing what you're up to. And uh, hopefully you'll get some more people interested in what you're doing, because I think you are representative of the best of the best as far as the next generation coming up. And um, I want to continue encouraging you. And of course, uh, um, I will help you in any way I possibly can. Um, and just thank you so much for what you're doing and, can, and carrying the torch. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. 
Yeah, thanks for coming on, Emily. And if you ever need anything mansplained to you, just give me a call. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take it easy, Emily. Thanks. Bye. Uh, All right, Bobo, there you go. Yeah, that's that's uh, she had, she has some cool thoughts, you know, about the cool thing about culture. Maybe they're singing and making. I mean, I, I think they're definitely making nests to sleep. And she could be right. Maybe they're not having. They might not have anything to do with. It might just be an art project, you know. And they sing and hum while they do it. That that could be the case. So, hope she can bring some light to those uh, questions and shed a little uh, knowledge on the rest of us. So, to me, the important thing is that she's asking questions. Um, cause uh, so many people, uh, so many big footers, but people in general are, they think they already have it all figured out. Right. And I'm, and I'm guilty of this as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I can, I, I have some sort of, uh, self-awareness here. And I think maybe a lot of other, some other people do, but maybe not too many. Um, but so, so many other people have it all figured out and they go out into the woods to verify what they already know. Um, whereas she's asking questions that, that, that like literally some of those questions probably cannot be answered really in, in any reasonable time frame. Um, but she's asking them and that is not only a sign of intelligence, that's a sign, uh, of someone who is on the right path. You know, let's say Doug Highcheck, for example. Um, I learned this, Doug, Doug recently during his uh, presentation at the Minnesota Big Fun Conference, um, said that he didn't have a college or he didn't have a college education. He, he never graduated high school. But yet he's published scientific papers. He's the owner of five or six businesses. He's successful in his life in general. And he's, he attributes it all to asking questions and really wanting to know the answers. And that's kind of one of the things I see in Emily. And I think that that's what sets her apart. She's not out there to verify what she already thinks. She's asking questions and seeing what's out there and does it support her idea. Yeah, because if, if people aren't asking the right questions, you're not going to get the right answers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, if you're not asking questions, you're not going to get any answers. Right. Cool. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 